Welcome to episode two of the Eat Local Central New York podcast. I am your host, Anthony Tringale. I am sitting down with chef and co-owner of Diffie Cuisine right here in Syracuse, Chef Cody Dedeshu, talking about wine and food and where he comes from and how he got trained and the kitchens he's worked in and the local scene here in Syracuse. Do me a huge favor, hit that subscribe button, leave us a review on whatever platform that you are listening to the podcast. Make sure that you're following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EatLocalCNY. Head over to our website, EatLocalCNY.com, to find a long list of all the restaurants that we support here in Central New York with the Eat Local CMY card. If you haven't bought your Eat Local CMY card, make sure you pick yours up today. I really hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it. Without further ado, let's jump into the conversation between myself and Cody Dedishu. We're sitting here with Chef Cody Dedishu. Give me, tell me the chef thing, just real quick. Now, obviously, it's a term of respect, correct? Um, to a degree, yes, it's a term of respect. It's a term of a term you earn. Um, listen, anybody can cook. Mm-hmm. In that movie Ratatouille, they said that, and I firm heartedly believe that anybody can cook. To be a chef, it's about much more than that. It's about your organization of a kitchen. It's about being able to lead a team into battle. Um, Anthony Bourdain, in um, a few of his books, describes the kitchen as a um, motley crew, as though you're on a pirate ship. You're the captain of the pirate ship, and that's kind of how you feel as a chef. Mm-hmm. Um, as a chef, it's about menu planning it's about scheduling hiring firing having the hard conversations with people that you're not pulling your weight it's about taking ingredients that sometimes are less than usable and what i mean by that is taking um the stalks from swiss shard and how do you take the stock that's incredibly fibrous and somewhat bitter and make a component for a dish that's absolutely fabulous out of it how do you take uh like a lamb as opposed to a lamb loin and make it succulent and delicious and tender and something that people want to savor. All of those things are what makes a chef. Mm-hmm. And then kind of the reason that you're referred to as chef in a kitchen is chef is French for boss. Mm-hmm. So you're the boss, you're the boss of the kitchen, you're in control, you're in command. So that's chef. There it is. If I see you on the street, should I call you chef? I get that a lot. <laughs> it doesn't offend me at all. Right. Um, no, I'm Cody. <laughs> okay. So, but I mean, tell us a, a little bit about your history. Are you from Syracuse originally? I'm not. Um, so I grew up in a rural town, Michigan, uh, Memphis, Michigan. Graduating class had probably 70 kids in it, including me. You know, it's one of those schools where we didn't have money to afford a track so we didn't have track we didn't have money to have one of those fancy what do you call them swimming pools yeah we had a (laughs) pond um that was our swimming pool um but it was a good upbringing um i grew up with chickens horses pheasant turkeys my parents had a large vegetable garden um i grew up hunting and fishing learning how to catch a lot of my own food Hmm. and i grew up with an absolute respect of nature so uh, what did your parents do for a living? Uh, my dad is a mechanic. Um, he actually owns his own shop, and he's been doing that for uh, how many other years has he had the shop? Probably 22, 23 years. And my mother is an IT. She actually works for um, a public library in Michigan as their director of information technology. Hmm. She basically runs everything for, I think there's three different libraries. So dad's a mechanic, mom's an IT, mm-hmm. and how do you get into food? At a very young age, um, I can remember growing up, probably I was, I don't know, eight or so years old. Um, my dad's parents passed away before I was actually born. And so one of the things that we inherited was a three by five index card box. Mm-hmm. And that had all of my grandmother's recipes in it. And I can remember making one of those recipes one year for my parents and for, I think it was Thanksgiving. And I remember the feeling of seeing my dad at the table enjoying something that his mom had made Hmm. and how powerful it was, uh, the power of food, the strongest sense of memory that you have is through smell. So to me, being able to associate with people's memory and being able to associate with 
kind of a legacy in that way mm-hmm. is what really drew me in. I think food just is a wonderful medium, a wonderful vehicle to express. Um, it's a wonderful art. You're in Michigan. Mm-hmm cooking your own food, getting this recipe thing. What makes you say, well, first of all, so I know that you're a, a graduate of Johnson and Wales. Is that correct? correct? So did you go there first? Did you go to somewhere in between that? Did you go straight from high school to Johnson and Wales? So how kind of my progression went was at 13, I started working actually at a butcher shop. I got to know, uh, it was a guy actually just down the road from where my parents were and got to know him and basically begged for a job (laughs) like hey i want to work here whatever it takes i'll do it and it took me a while to convince him that i was serious about it Mm -hmm. finally he let me in and i got to cooking or i got to working um and it was like scrubbing tables washing floors taking apart the meat grinder (laughs) scrubbing everything down it was pretty much the worst jobs he could (laughs) imagine for me and i had to prove myself i proved that i was serious about it and he taught me everything that he knew about butchery. Hmm. Long story short was he passed me along to um, a chef friend of his. that, And he said, you know, look, this kid has potential. Hmm. And right about the same time, I started. So in Michigan, we have Votech, or okay. technical schools, okay. that you can go to as part of your education yeah. um, for high school. So half the day I would be in high school. The other half of the day I would go to Votech, and I took culinary arts in the Votech. Hmm. So I was working a job at a golf course. They had me come in as like a cart boy, and then I basically persuaded my way into the kitchen (laughs) (laughs) and got to cook a little bit. Really simple food, burgers, dogs, sandwiches. Yeah, It was a 19th hole, so it it was just that. It was a hole. But the lead cook, I won't even call him a chef, but the lead cook (laughs) there, he recommended me to Four Lakes Golf Club, which is my first real experience with food. Hmm golf club that had banquet facilities for up to a thousand people upstairs and like a second floor they had a full service restaurant that could seat 250 one kitchen that was responsible for everything the executive chef of the place was a graduate of the cia knew his food wow so at 16 i kind of got thrown into the deep end i learned my way through the line walked in on pantry went from pantry to fry cook fry cook to grill cook grill cook to saute Worked my way right down the line, and then onwards to banquets. And that took me all the way up until I was 18. Moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, right after graduating from high school. Good and, food scene down there. Yep, got started um, at Johnson Wales in Charlotte. And worked my way through a few different restaurants in Charlotte. Each time kind of taking a step up in the food scene. Mm-hmm. Moving from, you know, like a two-star restaurant to a three-star restaurant, so mm-hmm. on and so forth up the road. Wound up at a place called Blue in downtown Charlotte, which is an amazing restaurant. Yeah. Um, the chef really knows the shit. He keeps it together. Very tight crew. Big brigade, though. Um, mm. 18 people working on any given night. Wow. Restaurant seats about 300. Um, and you'd turn the restaurant at least twice a night. And you're preparing really nice food yeah. at a huge pace. Mm. So I learned a lot of cooking chops there. Short stage at Alinea uh, in Chicago. Um, got wait, to learn. Wait. <laughs> What? Yeah. You can't just say short and a linea and then just move past that. Sure you can. No, you can't. It's a true story, though. Um, (laughs) It was only for about two weeks. Um, It was just a free stage. So a stage is something that we do in the culinary world where basically you work for free. Yeah. Um, It's a learning experience. It's a growing experience. I got to go in. It took a lot of begging and pleading (laughs) to get in. But um, basically, I showed up. I was the first one there in the mornings. Um, hoping to unlock everything and start dragging prep out and I would stay until one in the morning so it's like 6 a.m to 1 a.m <laughs> kind of a deal for 14 days straight yeah. and you just bust your ass but you can soak up so much information over such short periods of time you know when you come into defeat nowadays um, and you see things like powdered oils and um, serification going on and a lot of those techniques are techniques that I picked up there wow so. you know it's amazing I feel as you're sitting here talking about that, I'm thinking I could be completely full of shit, but I don't know how many industries there are where just that I'm going to show up here, be the first one there, sit here for two weeks for free, just so I can learn. I don't have another industry where that's as prominent or uh, necessary. I think um, a lot of the service industry has things like that. Mm -hmm. So the wine industry, 
it's a very common thing. Beer industry, I've seen it quite a bit. Um, but outside of the service industry, I don't really see that. Yeah. Um, or know of it, at least. Um, mm-hmm. I could be dead wrong. Maybe that, maybe it does exist. But Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like, I mean, even myself included, I'm chasing, I think everybody is, you know, if you're trying to build something for yourself, then you're kind of starting it with the expectation of, I just said that I can do this. Why isn't somebody paying me for it? Right. Instead of kind of putting in that grind and, you know, kind of hustling for free for a little bit while so you can earn your chops and kind of, you know, rise up a little bit. Right. And I think that's part of it. I think another part of it too is that just to experience how another chef works, Mm -hmm. you know, I think one of the most humbling experience or one of the most humbling things that every chef has to learn in their career is you don't know everything and you're never going to know everything. That's called the theory of higher learning that they say, you know, 5%, you don't, you know, you don't know 10%, but what you don't know, you don't know makes up the rest of it. (laughs) So that 85% is always what you're chasing. But the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah. So it's a little perpetual cycle that you kind of get caught in. But doing those stages and working for others is ways that you help fill in some of those gaps. Mm-hmm. You know, there's people out there that I never in a million years would think that I would be wanting to learn from, mm-hmm. but I want to. Yeah. Um, you know, it, and even local people that I get inspired by and I get pulled in. So Kyle over at Kasai Ramen, yeah. I pick up things all the time from him. I watch mm-hmm. what he's doing and I'm like, oh yeah cool flavors i'm stealing that <laughs> like just a couple of weeks ago i was running a uh red miso creme brulee hmm. um as one of the desserts nice. for a defeat and that's completely inspired by kyle yeah um i never in a million years would think red miso to go for creme brulee <laughs> on my own and uh kyle was playing around with some misos and i was sit there and i tasted them and it was so sweet it's funky but it's sweet hmm. and i'm like man I know what I want to do with this. So I asked Kyle if I can borrow a cup of miso. And he's like, yeah, sure. Just tell me what you're doing with it. And I'm like, no. <laughs> but um, it ended up being a really, really cool dessert. That's um, awesome. But just little things like that. Um, and that's one of the things that I think I learned the most at Alinea. Chef Ackett's way of kind of looking at things, looking at the world, is so incredibly different. Mm-hmm. You know, an L train can go by outside the window and he'll look at it and he'll think about a sub, like a submarine sandwich. Mm-hmm. And he'll go, why can't we move a sandwich around a table? Why can't we treat it just like the train? <laughs> why can't we levitate it? Why can't we... And at Alinea, we do not cap imagination. We don't. Mm-hmm. They never will take and say, nope, that's impossible. We can't do it. Yeah. It's always, all right, let's figure it out. Hmm. You know, one of the latest things, their tables are now electric, and all of their rocks glasses have um, little electromagnets built into them hmm. so that you levitate above the table. Wow. Little things like that are just, it's insane when you go there. Yeah, that's wild. So, so all right, so you hit up Alenia, you're there for a couple of weeks. I know, <laughs> I, so, I've, uh, and tell me where I'm at in the timeline, but I know that you had kind of worked your way up the ranks a little bit at uh, the Masters, is that correct? Uh, yeah, so um, back my second year of college, I was a um, TA, teaching assistant, mm-hmm. and a group of us were asked if we could participate in the Masters Tournament in Augusta, Georgia. Just go down as cooks, help fill in, mm-hmm. um, and we would be bringing along some other cooks from Johnson & Wales in the effort of kind of helping to run one of the stations at the Masters. And I'm like, sure, happy to do that. So we went down. And uh, didn't really know what to expect. Had never really done a golf tournament before, and especially one of this caliber and this level. Was thrown in kind of the deep end to what they call the EDR. Um, Basically, it's their main commissary kitchen. Mm -hmm. And you're responsible for prepping out for about 200,000 people a day. (laughs) It's literally put your head down, make sure your knives are sharp. And get to fucking cooking. <laughs> like, that's all you can do that's all day It's just cook. Yeah. You show up early in the morning, you leave late at night, mm-hmm. and you just cook all damn day long. And it was good fun. So I did that the first year. The second year, I was asked to come back as a sous chef. Mm-hmm. And then uh, for a few years thereafter, I was coming back every year um, as sous chef, then as an area chef. So an area chef is responsible for, like, 
just as an example, there's a UPS tent. They call it a tent. It's actually a beautifully, lavishly appointed house hmm. um, that's a suite that yeah. UPS rents out for like $50 million for the week. <laughs> and they get four meals a day, uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner, a snack that are grand buffets laid out. Wow. Beautifully appointed, lavished foods. I mean, there's no expense spared with caviars and faglas and truffle this and truffle that. It was... Um, you kind of get sick of truffle, actually, believe it or not. <laughs> I don't know if that's possible. It is. <laughs> but um, a few times thereafter that, I was, uh, after area chef, I became the commissary chef for the EDR. And at that point, I had probably 30 to 35 sous chefs reporting to me, 250-ish hmm. commies or cooks um, reporting to the sous chefs reporting to me. About the same number of dishwashers reporting to me, bussers, runners, food fetchers. I mean, in total, probably six or seven hundred people that I was responsible for organizing and getting put together. At that point, I was showing up about a week early to the tournament um, to help organize, to help get menus prepared, to get the food order done. Shout out to Cisco for that one. (laughs) (laughs) They, uh, (laughs) one year, um, we came back with, uh, I think it was a $28 million order. Wow. Yeah, Holy. that's what the rep said. <laughs> $28 million. Yeah. So he uh, he just about shit a brick. And he's like, okay, <laughs> we'll get the trucks here. Then it's like 18 semis pulling up, <laughs> fully loaded with food, like yeah. loaded for bear. Yeah. It's an ins- insane experience. So you're at the Masters. You're cooking. You've worked your way up there. I mean, what happens from that point after? I know you cooked around but how uh, i guess help me connect why and how you come to syracuse yeah so um i worked um for a lot of different hotels i was at uh the hotel laguna in laguna beach california for a little while i did short stages basically all over the place and then those turn into excuse me long-term working banquet chef here banquet chef there um Basically, the path went from Michigan to North Carolina, North Carolina to um, short stint in Georgia and then Florida and then um, all the way out to California for a while. And then um, some life events happened um, and I basically wanted to make a life change and realized that uh, I wanted to pursue my master's degree. SU was one of the first schools to accept me. And I did a tour of the campus. I talked with some of the facility manager or the facility people there. I'm like, yeah, this seems really cool. Um, and at the same time, they were offering me a job. So that makes it pretty easy, right? Uh, <laughs> the other kind of side of chef for me is also psalm. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm a level three certified psalm through the quartermaster sommeliers, and SU is seeking me to teach food and wine appreciation and beer and wine appreciation. All right, hold on. <laughs> I knew that you were somewhere in that mix, but I didn't know that you were a level three yeah. of your certification. So, I mean, are you? What are you getting that to, like at night while you're sleeping? I mean, how are What's you? Sleep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when are you going through the ranks to hit level three certification? Basically, it all started in culinary school. Um, part of Johnson Wales curriculum is wines. They start you with the WESET program. Okay. Um, the WSCT is a wonderful education program. It's not nearly as tricky as mm-hmm. the Psalm. Yeah. But the WESET does a really good job of preparing you. I went all the way to master with the WESET. And I'd say that the master on a WESET is probably equivalent to somewhere between certified Psalm and advanced Psalm okay. in the court. So basically when I was 22 is when I had finished my master with the WESET, which... Um, the theoretical study started when I was about 19, starting at Johnson & Wales, mm. and then that built up to just after graduation. Um, I went for the master with that. Took my certified psalm the same summer as I got my master with the Wii set, and that one was pretty easy to get okay. through just because it was so fresh in memory. Did some pretty hard studying over the next two years, three years, almost four years after that, and then I went for my advanced psalm. Wow. So, yeah. Dear God. Is there anybody in else in the area that has that? 
that it's an advanced. Yeah. Um, not that I'm aware of. Okay. Um, I know of a few certified psalms. Yeah. I don't know of any advanced. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean they're not out there. Right. I've just been recently, uh, I'd say, actually, you know, uh, Anthony D'Onofrio, who was on last week, he was talking about, I think he's gone through his second level. Right. And that just sparked the thought in my head that maybe for Eat Local Central New York, I should know a little bit more about food and wine and (laughs) things like that. And so... It's a rabbit hole. Yes. (laughs) It's a dark, dark, dark rabbit hole, and it will suck you in. You've met my fiance Rebecca before, yes. and Rebecca is without a doubt the level-headed one in our group, and the two of us. <laughs> and I'm the type of person who I think of something and let's go do that. Right. Uh, at least let's try. Hence the five thousand dollars in camera equipment I've spent since <laughs> Christmas. Uh, cheers to five grand. Cheers to five grand. I am happy to say, just to jump off this topic for a second. It makes me feel good knowing that I could never do what you do. <laughs> and I was thinking about this. I don't believe that. I, well, I do. Uh, I was thinking about this last week with uh, Anthony that was on the podcast. I couldn't do what he does. Like, there's just, there are certain things that people shouldn't, like, there's certain things that you excel at and that an average person, no matter how hard they try or work at it, probably isn't going to get to the same level that you are. And I think that personally, (laughs) I understand this may be a deflating two minute conversation, this podcast for some people (laughs) listening at home that want to become a chef one day. But, uh, I don't, I think that's just the way that it's supposed to be. See, I'm going to disagree with you. And the reason I disagree is it's all about passion. Yes. Um, I don't give a damn what your talent, what your natural talent level is. I don't believe in natural talent. Okay. Um, I believe in learned talent and I believe in dedication. Mm -hmm. You don't get good in this industry through natural talent. You don't get good in this industry for any other reason than you put your head down and you try and you learn. Mm. Um, I eat, breathe, sleep food and wine. That's it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not even joking when I say sleep. I dream about it. I dream about cooking. I dream about um, if it's a really bad service, sometimes I'll go home and I'll have nightmares of the ticket machine going off in the kitchen. Um, that sound is forever ingrained in my head when you have a rail full of tickets for four tops, six tops, eight tops, deuces, and then the ticket machine just won't fucking stop. Like <laughs> It's the worst nightmare in the world because no matter how hard you push and how hard you try, you never get caught up. Right. But I believe that if... Whoever you are, put your head down and you have an absolute passion for it. When you put your mind to it, you can achieve it. Really? Um, I come from a humble background and humble beginning. Not to say that I'm anybody now because I'm not. But it's just a matter of reading the magazines, reading books, educating yourself on it. Mm -hmm. You know, every vocation, I don't care what it is. You get out of it what you put into it. I got out of culinary school what I put into it. I gave it 150% and I got 120% in return. Yeah. You know, I took the time to learn who the Trois brothers are. I took the time to learn that Lamelle Grossier was the first female chef to ever get six Michelin stars. And what did she do for the industry? Well, she taught the Trois brothers. She taught Paul Bocuse. Well, who did they teach? Well, they taught Marco Pierre White. And then that trickle goes right down the line mm-hmm. to modern chefs. Yeah. There's a lineage and a hierarchy mm-hmm. to culinary arts and where it started. And if you really want to pinpoint it, you can really start it with Le Mail Grossier. Yeah. There's uh, another little book out there called The Repertoire de Cuisine. Uh, and the repertoire is one of those things that I think every professional chef needs to have in their back pocket. Mm. Up until, I'd say, the 1970s, 1980s especially, uh, the repertoire is the food that was... Cr- produced across the world globally period Hmm. like that was the food yeah you didn't deviate chefs weren't creative chefs weren't the mind-numbingly i don't know i don't want to say that on this but (laughs) they weren't the celebrity figure that they are today yeah um and i disagree with the celebrity figure that they are today Hmm. strongly i think celebrity and to like to what regard Celebrity that were made out to be artists. 
You don't agree with that? Strongly disagree with that. Wow, okay. An artist, to me, is somebody that shows up in sweatpants late to work, who is sloven Mm. to at least some degree, who somewhat lazy, who has this idea in his head, whether it's a pipe dream or not. Um, And yes, they have some creativity. Yes, they are very good at putting pen to paper or whatever their medium is. But that's not the idea of a chef. To me, a chef's a craftsman. A chef comes in every day and takes great pride in his work. And yes, we are artful about how we plate stuff. But that doesn't make us an artist. Mm-hmm. We're really good craftsmen because we come in every day and we take great pride in our work. We're 10 minutes early and 10 minutes late leaving. That's what it takes to be a chef. It's not showing up and, wow, look at me. I can throw shit on a plate and make it look great. It's nothing if it doesn't taste good. I agree with that statement 100%. I was having this conversation with my sister, though. My father grew up in the restaurant industry. My dad was a graduate of, now the name escapes me, in Rhode Island for food and beverage. Mm -hmm. And worked, he was the director of some sort for Mr. Steak in the Northeast for a while. Food and beverage director for Holiday Inn for a while. And owned a restaurant here in the mid-70s, I think, over on Dealership Row, West Tennessee Street, uh, Diner. And I think, I forget the exact numbers or specifics, but he was some percentage owner in the first ever franchised Pizzeria Uno. Wow. Yeah. And when I was a little kid, when I was probably seven, eight years old. Now it makes sense why you're not a chef. Yeah. (laughs) You grew up with it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. When I was like seven or eight years old, we lived in Kentucky. That's where I was born and raised and moved here when when I was a teenager. But my parents had a diner. Dad opened a 50-style diner, Cereos Diner, had the... Uh, hides food you'll like on the uh, logo out front and had everything on that menu from eggs to a heel of a sandwich he called it which was basically a the heel of a italian loaf stuffed with the meatballs and whatever <laughs> right so everything on the menu they had it for a year and i was homeschooled at the time but i remember i would be up at the diner a lot and there was some period of time they only had it open for a year there's some period of time where I would go up there after the lunch rush, walk, catch up on some of the dishes once the dishwasher left. There would be like a 30-minute window where there was no waitress, no cook, no dishwasher, but our family lived up there. so. And I would help out by taking a table and helping my dad to cook the food I could at that young age in the kitchen and then cleaning right. those dishes. So that was the closest I ever got. I did cook third shift at a Denny's after high school, my senior year of high school. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The one on West Genesee Street that's torn down now. But I cooked third shift there. Why tore it down? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> For a summer, I did that. And I enjoyed it. I loved it. But I'm not in that. I'm not in the industry directly. Right. Right. I do the this. I do the marketing, whatever. Maybe that's why I kind of romanticize the food industry. I think if you think about, if you think back to some of your more fond memories, like you were talking about when we started that recipe book from your grandmother that dad had such great, me- that's where I think the art comes into it. I can, I can think back to meals I've had at a friend's house. who I was telling you about before we started, but more importantly, I can think back to the dish he made and then the things that trans. And I think that's kind of where just, I think it's the same as if a writer were crafting a short story or a book. Or a storyteller is crafting a video, a movie, um, whatever it is, to try and pull emotion out of that person that's consuming what you're creating. Mm -hmm. Now, I do feel the same way about somebody who makes leather goods, you know, somebody who makes a nice leather bag. Right. It's the same thing. I think they're both. I think it's craftsman and artist. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I can remember... I remember every conversation. Now, this is a little weird, but I can remember every conversation, the three I've had with you since I first <laughs> tried your food. But it's because of that that, you know, what you do pulls out of people. So, right. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry, I'll stop. Uh, no, you're good. <laughs> and that's huge because, you know, restaurants can do that. Experiences or experiences for people. But like last night, we went to the hop spot and. That burger looked killer, by the way. Yeah, right? I saw it. Yeah, that was on good. On your Instagram. Yeah, that was really good. Um, Shout yeah. out to his Instagram. Yeah, thank you. 
But it's funny. It's just like walking in there, Rebecca and I. When was the last time we were here? Remember we had that big fight? Yep. What was that about? I don't remember, but that was a good chicken sandwich, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, and there's, there's just certain restaurants or certain foods that kind of bring more of that out, I think. Well, and I think, um, you know, that – so at, at our restaurant, at me and Nick's restaurant, Tafi, that's what we try to be. Um, it, we say it on the website quite a few times and on our Instagram and on our Facebook that we're a dining experience. We're not just going out to dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, those are words that we live by. For those of you who might be listening to this that haven't been to the restaurant, we're designed so that there's 20 seats at a chef's counter that wrap around the kitchen. Um, it's completely open and apparent to everybody. So we have nothing to hide. Right. We're trying to break down those walls and those barriers so that the guests can have that conversation with the chef, number one. But number two, so that it's something that's memorable and different and engaging. I want people to question or start to question at least, where is your food coming from? Yeah. How is it being sourced? Is it ethical? Is it responsible? Is it environmentally conscious? Is it clean? Is it clean? Who's handling it? What do they look like? Have they washed their hands <laughs> all those things are like crucially important and i think we don't question it enough without a doubt if i took anything out of a master's program which for eighty thousand dollars i damn well better but <laughs> um if i took anything out of it it's to question question everything in life yeah and to me whenever you're putting a wall up you're hiding mm-hmm. so why are you what are you hiding in your kitchen yeah what what are you trying to keep us from seeing and I think that's why me and Nick wanted to have the open concept that we do. We wanted to be able to show off that, yeah, we work clean. Yeah, you know, we're smart about where we're sourcing. I work with local farms because it's the best possible quality that I can get. It's right. not about just being a farm-to-table restaurant. It's about seeking out the best possible quality. I've had probably 20 farms approach me um, in the past year that we've been open about trying to use some of their products, and a lot of them I won't use. Hmm. Um, I won't use, number one, because it's probably – an environmentally responsible thing to do. Mm-hmm. Really good example. I'm not going to tell you the name of the farm, but there's a hydroponic farm here in upstate New York that um, has some beautiful lettuces. They do stuff year-round. Um, they could give me local greens year-round. That's pretty cool. Hmm. I tasted the lettuce. I'm like, yeah, this is delicious. It's organically farmed um, hydroponically, which is really cool. Hmm. So we go through this whole conversation, and my very last question for the farmer, I said, so... After you're done with the water, do you have a recirc system? So meaning that you're filtering it, you're recirculating it, you're reusing all this water. Or what do you do with the water when you're done growing hydroponically? And he said, well, we tend to just dump it in the creek in the backyard. I'm like, fucking what? <laughs> yeah, we, we just dump the water in the creek in the backyard. It's all organic. I'm like, yeah, but you're releasing excess nitrogen, phosphorus mm-hmm. back into the environment that wasn't there to begin with. Yeah. You're, even though it's organic pollution, you're still polluting. Mm-hmm. I can't use you. Wow. He goes, what? I said, yeah. Thanks, but no thanks. Take your lettuce back. I can't use you. I won't have you in the restaurant. Examples like that, you know, it, it's all about making those right choices. Yeah. Um, the reason that we say that we're mostly locally sourced is um, one of the main fish dishes on my menu right now is sea bass. It's coming from Veta La Palma in Spain. I'm flying fish halfway across the fucking world because it's the most sustainably sourced seafood that I can possibly get. To me, when you talk about sustainability, it's a really hard subject for a lot of people nowadays because there's no real definitive answers on it. There's nobody saying, well, to be certified sustainable, you have to do these steps. To me, sustainability means as a farm, you have no net import, only net export. So you're using and you're creating ecosystems to produce your food. A good example of that locally is Klaus Martens. Klaus is a grain farmer in Penyan, and he really is one of the people that started organic farming for upstate New York, um, especially organic grain farming. And just to be clear, he is the grain farmer, right? I mean, really, um, for perspective, if you've heard ever heard of um, the University of Laverstoke, Klaus is one of what we call the Fertile Dozen, there was a dozen people that got together to create what's called the ideal farm, mm-hmm. Laverstoke. Klaus was one of those dozen. Wow. Um, dozen farmers from around the world. Like, this is global. He was one of 12 to have that kind of input. He's a brilliant, brilliant man and incredibly humble. Um, but he can walk around his field 
and look at something and tell you, oh, that's thistle. That means that I need more of this yeah. in this area, and I'm going to plant this in my next crop rotation so that it replenishes this nutrient that I'm looking for. He is very deep in Mennonite belief that if you try to farm more than you can walk in a day, you're losing the point. He is a brilliant man when it comes to food and crops. And shout out to Mary Howell, his wife, who makes <laughs> probably some of the best cakes in the world <laughs> with their own grains. Yeah. But back to kind of the point of Vetla Palma, um, this is a farm, a fish farm. They don't feed their fish. They have no doubt at import. That's crazy. Yeah. It's a farm that doesn't feed hmm. animals. What? They rely on the health of an ecosystem that they've created. And how it works is something like this. So it's right off of the Guadalquivir Canal. And as water flows in from the first, from that canal, it's carrying everything you would expect in a modern river. Excess nitrogen, ex- excess phosphorus. It's all flowing off of farm fields. That water flows into a series of ponds, and that first ponds that it goes into are algae-blooming ponds. They purposefully create an algae bloom to soak up all those nexus in nutrients. The next ponds after that are plankton ponds. The plankton feed on the dying algae. The plankton then flow into a shrimp pond. The shrimp then start feeding on dying plankton. The shrimp then flow into the sea bass pond, and the sea bass then eat on the shrimp. And it creates a perfect life cycle. It's insane, and it's gorgeous in its creation, and the end result is fish that tastes more of itself and more delicious than any fish I've ever experienced. It's truly something to behold. When you take and you sear off a Wagyu chunk of beef, it has so much fat in it that it's almost self-basting. You can watch it, and you maybe if you're searing it in a cast iron pan, maybe you start with a tablespoon of oil, and by the time you're done, there's a quarter cup of oil in the pan because of all this fat that's rendering out. The sea bass does the same thing. Mm. The sea bass has so much fat in it. You take a six-ounce fillet, and you're giving it a really nice hard sear on that skin after you score it to make it beautiful, crisp, golden brown, GDB as we like to call it, golden brown and delicious. And then you flip it over just for a few seconds on the other side to finish the cook through. But you start off with a tablespoon of oil, and you're looking at this thing, and you got like three or four tablespoons of oil in this pan when you're done, and you're like, fuck. <laughs> but it's just out of the fish, and it's so gorgeous and just incredibly succulent amazing fish yeah i think there's the local movement obviously yes eat local cny i mean that's why we're here but there's certain things we shouldn't source locally right uh there's certain things especially in the culinary world that we should be trying from anywhere we can get our hands on it and if it's not being sourced or made properly here in our local area we need to go to where it is we're never going to get fresh, unspoiled olive oil in Syracuse, New no, York. Ever. Right. Probably not Until even, teleports involved. Yeah, exactly. Involved at least. Right. You know, it's just there are certain things that we have to go out of our local area to get because right. it's what it is. You know what? This is your next business venture. Are you ready? Yeah, please. So get a big <laughs> warehouse. Put in all kinds of natural sunlights. Start growing olive trees. Yeah. Syracuse Olive Oil Company. Oh, there we go. I don't know. I think Olive Oil CNY. I think I don't know if I want to compete against Salsa Q's and Sriracha Q's <laughs> and Salt, the Syracuse Salt Company, who I've been told I've I've heard something in the past about they're close to having a salt that's actually from here. I have some of it in the restaurant. Do you really? Yeah. Um, it? It's actually some of the original so mine is not the local or the fresh harvest. Mine is from when the mines were originally opened. Mm. Um, they happen to have some still at Syracuse Salt, and they gifted it to me, so wow. I'm incredibly grateful. It's a fine grind salt. Typically in a kitchen, fine grinds are cooking salts, mm-hmm. things you use, especially in baking. Um, I prefer coarse um, flake salts, but the flavor on it is sweet. Mm. Um, it has slightly, like, brackish taste so like uh sort of sea salty and i'm assuming that there's a lot of limestone here in syracuse um you get like really great mineralic flavors off the end of it Mm. um it's a really nice salt honestly and i've been using it as a finishing salt but i'm also trying to hoard it a little bit because it's like one of the last four ounces (laughs) in existence at the moment so amazing so let me ask you this i mean i have so many questions sorry uh no you're I'm fine i'm a talker i know it no it's fine i mean listen i think there's gonna be two episodes anyways so i don't like the food reviews in this town okay i don't think they know what they're talking about 
I could be wrong, but I don't think they do. Do you mean as in published press, or you mean as in like Google review, Yelp review? Oh, so what are you looking at? Yeah, I'm looking at published press. Okay, okay. Google and Yelp are a whole different story. Who knows the person's knowledge or understanding when they post something? I think. I'm just going to interject really quick because yes, I have a go good one on this. Right. <laughs> um, I have. We got a review um, just a couple of months ago now at Defeat, um, and I personally take to heart every review that I get. Nick and myself, we pour our hearts and our souls into all the food that we cook. And we really try our damnedest to make sure that everybody's having an amazing experience. So I got this reviewer who left me a one-star review on Google. And it hurt. Hmm. I'm like, what the hell? So privately, um, as an owner, you can you have access to see their Google account. And I emailed them yeah. through their Google account. And I said... Um, you know, listen, I'm very sorry that you had a poor experience. Um, please let me know what you didn't enjoy because they didn't leave any kind of a message to their review. It was just a single star. Please let me know how I can improve your experience. I would love to make it up to you. But then I clicked on their account and I started clicking through. So almost every restaurant that was any kind of decent that they've ever been to that was rated one star, every Taco Bell that they've ever been to was five star. <laughs> and I'm like really (laughs) exactly right and so those are things when it comes to the internet google yelp facebook reviews all of that i've been doing the marketing for enough restaurants in this town to know that there are just people out there who don't like something stupid and so they'll just go on there and leave a one-star review and make stuff up Mm -hmm. just happens i'm talking more about the food we don't have any food critics in this town I'm talking about more of the food reviewers. At one of my clients' places, we had a local newspaper come out, and they did a a review of our restaurant, and they reviewed our fried appetizer sampler. How can you review a fried appetizer sampler? So with that, I can't stand them. I've written most of them. Love Margaret McCormick. Yes. Chris Malone. I like both of them. I miss Don Kazan writing about food. Yeah. I appreciate that he switched over to more of the beverage side now, mm-hmm. which Don, why the hell haven't you been into defeat yet? But that's a whole other thing. I I have to kind of agree with you a little bit. I think, um, you know, having worked in places where you have real food writers and real food critics that mm-hmm. come in and scrutinize, having dealt with, you know, Michelin star reviewers, um, or Michelin reviewers, I should say, that come in and scrutinize every detail of what you do and how you're doing it and looking at the floors in the bathrooms looking at behind the toilets of the bathrooms looking underneath their table and lifting up the table to see if you swept underneath the table legs like Mm -hmm. having dealt with those kinds of things and then coming here it was like uh okay yeah Is there a food reviewer in this town that you would get nervous about them coming in? No. Okay. Is there a reviewer? No. Um, Are there people in this town that I respect and I would like to impress? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Anthony, who was on last week. Yeah. If he comes in. Yeah, for sure. I want to knock his socks off. Without a doubt. I want to blow him away. Yeah. Um, Kyle over at Kasai. Um, Josh at 315. People like that. People um, who are in the industry who are making something. And who know what the hell they're doing. Right. You know, the folks over at, at um, the Chef and the Cook in Beeville, if they come in, yeah, I want to show them a great time. Yeah. Those are people that I respect and that I think can do greater justice to um, explained food and to um, shed light on quality or inequality than most of our food writers. I do like a lot of our food writers. I've met a few of them. Quite a few of them have wanted to do reviews on the restaurant or wanted to come in. And <laughs> I just find it weird to be approached by them. Like, in most places I've ever worked, you're not approached by a food writer. You don't even know who they are. You don't know who they are. You don't know when they're coming. They show up at random times, and they just write about you. Yeah. I remember the Jonathan Gould, uh, May Rest in Peace documentary. Yeah where I forget the uh, critic's name, but they, he would go in and he wear, would wear the mask. Right. 
Um, yeah, you're not supposed to know who they are. Yep. Um, so to be asked if a writer or somebody can come in and do a story on you, it's like, no. <laughs> That's my short answer anymore. Yeah. Just no. Um, it's not worth my time. It's not worth the couple dozen people anymore who actually read print. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I'm not trying to dish or talk ill of it, but it, it's it's a dying art, and it's something that I don't see being around. I don't see uh, millennials picking up the average newspaper and sitting down with their morning cup of coffee for an hour and a half like our parents did, and not in this market going through the newspaper. Yeah, um, you know. It, Doing things like this and podcasts and people like yourself who give a shit about what I'm doing, that's more important to me. So, yeah. Is there ever, is it, uh, how should I say this one? Carefully. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it's actually not that aggressive. It's not oh. that mean towards anybody around here. Um, if anything, it's out of sympathy for yourself. Will there ever be a possibility of a restaurant in Syracuse getting a star? Um. So without giving away too much, um, I hope so. It's something that I'm working on. Um, <laughs> I have wrote a petition to the Michelin board in France. Um, technically, on paper, upstate New York offers everything that Michelin Guide looks for. Mm-hmm. We have an attraction. Um, to me, the attraction of upstate New York is the Finger Lakes. Yeah, without a doubt. We have an AVA wine region of the world. That's an attraction. Mm-hmm. People, um, last year, uh, 1.6 million visitors came to the Finger Lakes to visit our wine region. That's huge. We have a Four Diamond certified hotel by AAA. The Marriott Syracuse downtown a year ago got their fourth diamond. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Um, that's one of the things that they look for. Yeah. We have a PGA certified golf club mm-hmm. uh, over at Turningstone. We have um, what the guide is actually looking for. Um, so I think between my petition, um, and I happen to know a few Michelin guide inspectors, I'm trying my damnedest, (laughs) but the downsides of this are over the last 75 years, um, four areas around the world have lost their accreditations for Michelin. One has gained an accreditation for Michelin. Mm. They're very strict on their policies, their regulations. As they should be. As they should be. That's what makes it good. That's what keeps it good. Mm-hmm. And it's damn difficult. Yeah. So So after reading more about what it actually takes to be a sommelier, a master, and uh, and then the difference between that and a Cicerone, <laughs> I've decided that the Cicerone will be my first step. <laughs> okay fair respectable because the first thing that pops up on the on both websites is that there's over 200,000 cicerones in the united states there's 200 master sommeliers now granted the first level of certification for beer is a far cry from the master level of wine and uh cigars and well and if you look at the first level um certification that you can get for um the psalms um there are probably a hundred thousand or more yeah. first levels yes. in the US. But you know what it takes to become first level certified to be a Cicerone? Can you drink beer? Yeah. No, it, are you legal? Basically. It's yeah. it's it's eighty dollars. <laughs> it's a five hour video on their website that you get access to after you pay the eighty dollars. And then it's a <laughs> twenty question test or some form of a test online right um and you can take do that That you can take repeatedly right (laughs) and you can do it whenever you want to i looked into the first level certification for to be a sommelier and uh the next thing is in june in buffalo Mm -hmm. two days eight hundred dollars correct so what's my point in bringing that up and talking about myself for a second that is the things that are just available to the masses like it needs to stay Michelin should stay very prestigious and protected. Well, and for those of your listeners who might not know, um, first level exam for your psalm, mm-hmm. yes, it's a two-day test. Um, there's a small practical. You have to evaluate a wine. Um, there's a written test. There's a theory test. Um, your second level, you have to evaluate uh, two wines you have to be able to tell what region of the world those wines are from. Um, 
Your third level is six wines. Um, it's region of the world. It's grapes in the glass. It's <laughs> roughly what year it's from. Um, there's theory. There's wine production. There's service. So how you actually serve the bottle of wine. Um, you know, my test, I was actually throwing a lot of curveballs. I was asked to chill a red wine mm. down to about 30 degrees. Wow. Um, <laughs> they test you in all of your knowledge. Um, on purpose. On purpose, absolutely. Um, and then for the master, um, it's four or five. Uh, well, they're saying that they're cutting it down to a five-day test. Um, but they test you on everything there is to know about wine. Um can you name um, all of the grapes of Austria? Can you tell me, um, in viticultural term, what's the difference between a Vitis vinifera and a Vitis niagara? What are the most common grapes grown in the Niagara Escarpment? And then right from the Niagara Escarpment, they're going to take you to Chile and Argentina. And if I'm buying an Amalea from Argentina, which is a sparkling wine for those of you that don't know, um, what are the two grapes commonly used in an Amalea in Argentina? Well, it's Riesling and Trimonet, of course. What percentages are those commonly used? And well, it's typically higher on Riesling, about 80% and 20% Trimonet. But that's a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> but I digress. I digress. I'll get off my soapbox. The tests are extremely difficult. Yeah. Suffice yes. it to say. Yes. Uh, well, Cody, thanks so much for sitting down with us. Appreciate you taking Thank you. Time. Greatly appreciate the time and happy dining. Well, there it is, folks. Thanks again for checking out the Eat Local Central New York podcast. Hit us up at Eat Local CMY on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at eatlocalcmy.com. Send us a message. Let us know if there's anybody you'd like us to have on the podcast in the coming weeks. The next couple episodes we've got already locked down with some awesome people we're really looking forward to. And on March 6th, we're going to have an Eat Local Central New York dinner out at Tassone's Wine Garden in Baldwinsville. Hit us up on social media if you want some more information about that. And that's all from us until the next episode. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. We'll catch you at episode three.